Hi, this is CognitionX's podcast series where we look at the impact of AI and emerging technology on industry, government and society. I'm Charlie Muirhead. And I'm Tabitha Goldstorff. And this episode is a COGX Festival special. In June 2019, we were honoured to bring together 20,000 visitors who came to hear from over 600 speakers across 12 stages in the heart of King's Cross. Our mission is to bring clarity and help ensure responsible deployment and really move the conversation forward. My name is Eleanor O'Keefe. In this episode, brought to you by Luminate, four international experts explore the perils of dirty data. How does missing data, wrong data, or misrepresentations of data affect policing? How do we deploy algorithms that are fair, robust, and explainable? And should ethics be left to lawyers? It's a stimulating and provocative session. I hope you enjoy. Fascinating, thank you. So I think we only have about 10 minutes for our panel, and I'm gonna hand over to the audience. I want to pick up on a couple of threads that I heard that I thought were really interesting. This piece that you said, Christopher, around the visible, much publicized decline of trust in institutions, in societies, in um, governments. And I want to note that that's only for certain communities that marginalized people are far more likely to have less trust to start with. Um, And this kind of invisible sleepwalk towards um, trust in algorithms instead, trust in in data, trust in tech. And... um, I'm not sure if this is the right question, but how do we put the kind of genie back in the box? If we think about, if we think about the fact that these um, products are being used in police forces <laughs> across the world, um, how do we think about responsible purchasing power to start with? Like, how do we think about that? You know, it's not just about the kind of algorithmic audit- auditing and standards, but how do we think about educating those that are using the tools as well? And I'm curious to get Rashida's thoughts on this, given your research. I think we need to fundamentally rethink everything. And <laughs> yeah, everything. <laughs> no, it, because like the thing is, I'm not up here as a Luddite that doesn't believe in technology, and that's why I end after like talking for 20 minutes about how bad data is with like re- recognizing that it does have value. I think it presents an opportunity for us to address a lot of structural and systemic problems we have in society that we choose to avoid. So the like, I generally come from the viewpoint that none of these tools are going to work in the criminal justice system because it's broken. So if you're just putting Band-Aid solutions on top of a fundamentally dysfunctional system, you're not even the best working, like, uh, model or machine learning system is still going to produce bias and unjust outcomes because it's based on this underlying system. But, and I also think where you see the deployment of these tools shows a sort of asymmetry in political agendas in that I didn't get into this in the presentation, but we don't even have a full headcount on the amount of predictive policing systems that have been or are currently being used in the United States. But currently, there's only one pilot study that's looking at a known problem in policing in the US, and that's police misconduct. And it's a pilot that's not even done, and it's only in three um, jurisdictions. And the fact that we have hundreds of years of documented problems of misconduct in policing, and we know that's a known problem that data could actually help us address, there's only one pilot study, whereas we have all of these use cases that are used on some type of flawed pathology that we have about criminal justice that are being applied at a rate we don't even understand. And I think that shows you sort of where the priorities are, and that's why I think a lot of us have these great concerns is because it's like none of this is new, but it does provide an opportunity to sort of shift the way we look at these issues. So I guess the hope is 
that we change the conversation from how can we use data to help solve public safety and whatever identified problem um, has been made by politicians instead. How can we use data to understand the problems that we know exist, to understand policy interventions that should be in place to help address those problems or figure out just a completely new way to think about public safety education or whatever the social issue is? I, so may, maybe this is just the Canadian in me saying this, but I mean, the, 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 the reasons as to why the US justice system is as broken as it is are several and complex to say the least. But if we were to parse out you know, one major contributor perhaps. It was arbitrarily setting goals and working towards them. The war on drugs is perhaps one of the best exemplars of this. I think that if you want to not worsen the problem with the justice system, you have to have a little bit of clear-sightedness as to what you're working towards, what you're optimizing towards, what is success with predictive policing. Is it a world of no crime? Is it presumably less crime? Is it efficiency? Is it it, it, to me, it, there's always been a sort of lack of accounting. The predictive policing is one example, but the, you know, robot judges, quote unquote, is the other example. Um, to me, this seems like problematizing something, proffering the solution and saying, this will fix it, without any sort of clear understanding of what you're fixing, why, or how this thing will help you do it. But presumably, so, so I totally agree that this stuff done badly is very bad. But if you take the examples you were talking about around um, uh, these terrible discriminatory police, uh, like the, I forget exactly, Chicago, right? And you, you say that that gets you dirty data, which is obviously bad to put into an algorithm. So you remove the algorithm, but you're still left with a terrible discriminatory <laughs> police force. And I guess uh, there is, you know, and, and I guess maybe this is what you're advocating for, is in some sense we should change that but to me, that seems like we've been trying that for many, many decades, if not centuries. I would disagree that we're trying at all. <laughs> okay. Well, there are at least the. And that's the other layer, right? Is ultimately this comes back to politics and the short term versus long term view of, of how we kind of want the world to look. And I think in the current US system and the current UK system, you could argue that the current governments do not seem to have this piece around justice at the forefront of their minds. So, so accepting that, mm. then how do you make a small intervention? Like, you. If given, given that reality, conditioned on that, you're stuck with that, and you have only a very small set of tools that allows you to make a difference. And perhaps, perhaps there's a route, so I totally agree, badly built algorithms, terrible, and can make the problem worse, but perhaps this is a vision for the future where you can actually make a difference with a relatively small thing, because you could imagine, in principle at least, taking the decision out of the hands of these terribly biased discriminatory police forces. And this does offer a route that is somewhat different to what we've tried for the last 100 years and basically failed at consistently. That's a good question. Are yeah. there, and I, I, maybe I'm naive here, are there positive examples of technology that has worked, even in small, in the social justice space that, that you guys have seen? Um, I was gonna, Keith kept yeah. looking like he wanted uh, to talk to oh, no. Um, <laughs> All right, I'll do that one, and then I'll, so I'll do the positive thing first and then the, and the negative thing. Um, <laughs> so I think the positive thing, um, so I think a couple of examples that are starting to come up um, are the use of risk assessments not to make detention decisions, but to make sort of positive like social intervention questions. So um, like one of the issues even with deploying like a risk assessment tool is that at the end of the day, if the judge still only has two options, which is detain somebody or put them, give them bail or release them, um, 
it, it, it sort of it still sort of handcuffs the judge, right? Um, so I think creating opportunities to uh, match people who are in the criminal justice system with uh, alternatives to punishment and detention um, is is maybe a path forward. Um, but that having been said, I think to your point, like to me the sort of read I have of Rashida's paper is that it's a little bit like saying, um, you know, gosh, this aspirin that I'm taking isn't helping my case of plague, right? And like the solution isn't then like I will just need to take this other aspirin later, right? Or take more aspirin. It's like there needs to be sort of a fundamental policy change. And I think the lesson that we get from criminal justice is that that sort of no matter the the tools or the the policies or the institutions that are sort of mapped onto the the um, into onto a police force or onto a court, uh, we have to account for the fact that there is this sort of inbuilt model of thinking, this inbuilt way of thinking, and, and sort of dealing with how a, somebody like Chicago Police Department is going to manipulate whatever tool they have for their own ends. And I think that gets back to some of the points that Christopher was making about authority from the beginning, because even with some of the intervention models that are starting to come up, I'm always hesitant to be that optimistic about them because we live in a society that's fairly punitive mm -hmm. and often with a few cases of intervention models where social services are applied to an individual rather than being detained. Um, they're often implemented in a way that's dehumanizing, so it may have requirements that are setting people up to fail. So you have to go to seven meetings at all types of yeah. hours in a week and if you have a like low income job and no job flexibility, there's no way you're going to meet those um, sort of interventions. So then you're being set up to be sent back to jail. And I think that this approach can be useful if we actually try to take a more holistic and humanizing approach. So there was something in your paper that I thought was really appropriate. And that's the, the use of the uh, concept of feedback loops because feedback loops um, feature in another very important uh, AI-adjacent field, which is cybernetics. Um, and perhaps a better name for what we now refer to as AI would be just cybernetics 2.0. And if you, without going through the history of this, um, if you set yourself the goal of believing that computation or data is this sort of ontologically superior mechanism for intervening in your society, how you set up the structural determinants of that society within that circuit within that feedback loop will ensure that you are only ultimately repeating the same processes over and over and over again. The technology might get better and the circuit might get quicker, but structurally things don't change unless you have the courage to actually change the structural foundations of the, the system that you set up in the first place. But, but hang on, but all of these things are just, so what you said there is equivalently uh, applicable to our existing systems. In fact, I, I wasn't sure whether you were actually describing our existing system. We certainly have these feedback loops right now. Sure. There's certainly nothing that we can imagine doing about them to change them easily, because they're basically conditioned into human behavior. That is, you gave the perfect argument for why a technological intervention gives you the only hope of fixing it. Do you want to take that one? I guess I'm just confused as to why you think technological solutions are the only solution, because I think in a Actually, lot of... I don't of think they're the only solution. I think they... Uh, so uh, a, a behavior change solution offers a sort of decades-long track, and we should pursue that additionally. But, it, but there's a, a possibility to do something faster and cleaner. Could you but point I to an example yeah. where that's worked? Uh, where technology has improved something? <laughs> 
you know I mean, what I mean. Why, what, no, where, where it's achieved the, the narrow goal of facilitating behavioral change that we wouldn't consider to be insidious or just outrightly creepy. Uh, uh, so you're looking, for example, of a circumstance where um, a, a technology makes a decision? I'm looking for an example of what you were just claiming, yes. Of, uh, I mean, there, like, you can compare, I mean, so take Tetlock's view on expert political judgment. I mean, it's quite clear that um, algorithms often outpredict humans, uh, particularly in context. Is there a real-world use case that you could point to where uh, where this yeah, is actually yeah. consequential? I, mean, uh, I, mean, uh, I, I would I would say that I do think. I'm just thinking, you know, that there are very clear uses where algorithms give efficiency and utility. I take your point around social justice. I, you know, I think, are you particularly focusing on the social justice aspect? I think that within the justice system, uh, efficiency is a very, very Mm. Weird dangerous word, thing. dangerous yeah. word. I thought optimizing for efficiency in the justice system is terrifying. Um, that's never been the overriding priority, at mm -hmm. least not when I went to law school. But awesome. Okay. I was trying to pass out like technology as a general thing versus technology in this particular mm. space. Yeah. Just, just to, if I, yeah. I was trying to. Be no, I mean I, I agree that, but but again, an optimizing for an efficiency can be done by a human system or an algorithmic system, and I think your point holds equally to both. Like if you it is not at all clear what efficiency means in that circumstance, and it probably means something bad for the people inside this, that mm. get trapped in the system. I think maybe to close the loop on the question that, that you had started with, and, and maybe even to um, not continue to throw you under the bus um, and be responsible for We like justice. controversy here, don't we? Come on, this is Yeah, okay, fine. All right, well, then we'll get the bus later. But um, <laughs> I think that a, in terms of a short-term intervention that I think would be really meaningful, right, is um, that these tools are, are sort of procured through traditional procurement processes that, at least mm. in the United States, tend to be cloaked in secrecy. Mm. Um, and the, the sort of, I think, feedback loop that is nascent but still very worrying is this idea that it is okay to have these decision-making systems that are uh, not transparent and not accessible. No, 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 but, that, but that, that's my sort of point of like going into <laughs> like what is the short-term better, slightly better version or slightly less dystopic version of this. Um, there is a... Uh, yes, there's an argument. There's a, there's a case to be made for behavior change, for policy change. I think there's also a short-term argument that we need to find ways to destroy the business models of um, sort of companies that are pitching to the criminal justice system based on kind of secret programs and mm -hmm. secret algorithms. And so that may be that we're using something that's more transparent and not as good, but... There's a case to be yeah. made that no public sector algorithmic system should be anything other than open source and reviewable yep. in the first place. I mean, this yeah. probably should be off limits to the private sector, but I'm just yeah. old-fashioned like that, I guess. But I guess, I guess I'm really interested in um, your point around building up the courage. You know, I think there's been all kinds of um, examples in the last couple of months around Palantir and a lot of their work that um, is deeply creepy, even for someone like me who's quite technical, <coughs> optimistic by nature. Um, how should we build up the courage? And I want to hand over to the audience after this. Like, I want to kind of, I, you know, I know that a few of us on the panel are more optimistic than negative around, the, around this area, but obviously I have less knowledge in the space. How do we as a society build up the courage and make change? And I want to start with you, Rashida. I guess I'm going to ask for clarity. Make change through... If we look at, if we look at the entire system around social justice and policing, how do we, if we take policing as one particular example, how do we build that courage and really address what is a very long history of social bias, injustice, inequality, mm. oppression. That seems huge to me. How do we how do we I think, think about we need that? to take them on because I think thinking of these issues as too big to do anything about is why we're in a position where we have oppressive systems that well like the US 
system, we have like the largest amount of people in prison in the world, and you don't get there through <laughs> like just having a population of just bad people. Those are all policy decisions, so I think we just need to take these, decisions, uh, these types of discussions head on. A lot of them lead back to how do we look at poverty and broader social issues, and I think there's a lot of non-technical fixes as that requires us to be honest about political decisions that are being made, who's making those decisions, whose business interests are, are benefiting from those decisions, and either owning, hey, we want to make money off the fact that people are going to prison, or talk honestly as a society of if we want a safe community and we want everyone to have equal opportunities to education, social services, and anything else, what does it require for us to do that? and what is hindering us from making those decisions. And it's like, those are difficult questions, but if we don't have the conversation, then I think we're just going to continue with the status quo, which is bleak, but that's where we are. Doreen, uh, I really like the idea of, uh, of making sort of algorithms that are making these kind of choices open source, transparent, so that mm -hmm. they do get exposed to the best criticism out there. Um, I don't think there's any uh, rationale. I mean, I actually agree with Rashida on the, like my knowledge of, um, I mean, mainly from reading your, your work, but my knowledge of the algorithms that are being used, they're just terrible. Like obviously um, completely flawed and uh, just shouldn't be in, in use. Well, the, the trouble with Compass in the US at least is that they quickly retreated behind trade secret protection, exactly. which, which yeah. made yeah. the entire, you know, they, they, yeah. it, Exhibit A of terrible decision making in the justice system. I mean. <laughs> but I think I think the Law Society report that came out last week said the same in the UK. That um, I think it was Liberty FOI'd, yeah. and we're not able to find out who was using what algorithm. So it's it's a global problem. I think the black ah. box. And I think uh, to your simulations argument, like if you do present it as a black box, people do end up like naturally trusting it too much and not digging into it. But I do think that there's this glimmer of hope that. Yes, all of that is terribly flawed, and yes, it should just be immediately abandoned. But that doesn't mean that there's no hope of fixing it yeah. with these kind of technologies done right. I, well, and I think sorry, we only have a couple yeah. of minutes left. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, is that okay? Um, I, I think that, to your point, the way to sort of make changes to we need to sort of train advocates and lawyers to sort of better understand these tools and how they interact with the justice system. Because at least in the US and in common law systems, like lawyers are meant to be kind of the immune system, right? Yep. The, the only way that these things change is by cases being brought and by people fighting it. And that requires people to actually have an understanding of what the heck is going on behind these tools. I'll just say uh, just really quickly, um, my friend Julia Powell's wrote uh, something really, really good with Helen Nissenbaum on this. And I think that it is perhaps the most obvious way to answer this question. I, you know, uh, not to poo-poo ethics uh, more than I already have, but um, <laughs> I think that the conversation has been defined and success has been defined as resolving narrow computational puzzles, and once we do so, the idea is okay. Mm -hmm. And I think this is detracted from what they say is far more fundamental questions about what we should be building in the first place. Can I say one more? I also think we need to broaden who's in these conversations because often it's tech people talking about the algorithms and then lawyers talking about legal frameworks and then no one talking to people who are actually affected by the systems or have views on the broader social issues. So, oh, so that. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this episode compelling, there are three things we'd love you to do. One, subscribe to our podcast series so you don't miss another episode and please share it with your friends. Number two, if you want to experience COGX yourself, go to cogx.co and register so you hear about next year's event. And number three, if you have any other questions you'd like to ask anybody in the community, don't forget to register on cognitionx.com and ask a question on the Global Knowledge Network. Thanks for listening and let's keep moving the conversation forward together.